And hello again, my friends. Thanks for coming to church today. For those of you who are joining us online, we're grateful you're part of what God's doing in our community as well. This morning we continue a series we're calling Get a Life. Because in it, we're talking about the new life that we can live in Jesus. We're working through Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, as the Apostle Paul describes the life that could be ours. A life of peace and patience, a life of, of compassion and kindness, a life that's free of shame and overflowing with grace. And each week of this series, we're looking at a different aspect of the life that's truly life. And before we return to Colossians 3. Let's ask God to speak to us. Will you pray with me? Almighty, infinite God, I thank you for speaking into our lives. And I pray you speak to us today. As you speak, may you help us listen. Don't let our past experience of religion or relationships prevent us from hearing you. As we hear your challenge, may we not be offended or frightened, but may we gain understanding and insight. Lord, help us hear your heart and dare to trust you. And for those of us who have become become comfortable with the compromised, nominal faith that has little bearing on how we live. Lord, by your grace, would you make us wonderfully uncomfortable today for our own good and for the good of the people we love? We pray this prayer in the name of King Jesus. And we've got to start treating as king. Amen. A few months ago, I left the office on a Friday afternoon looking forward to an evening at home as a, as a family for takeout in a movie. While sitting at a stoplight, I send Suzanne and my three daughters, Emma, Alyssa, and Morgan, a text message. I ask, would anybody eat a chip cookie? Any of you ever had a chip cookie? If you're watching this online from another state. I'm sorry, you haven't had a chip cookie. I'm telling you, I could live on cheeseburgers and chip cookies. I love chip cookies. That night, Suzanne was on her way to pick up cheeseburgers, so I thought I would grab the chip cookies. I asked my girls, would anybody eat a chip cookie? I do not receive an immediate response. However, About five minutes later, Suzanne says simply, Morgan died. (laughs) Now, how does one respond to a text message like that? I pull over to the side of the road because I have a few things to process. A few moments later, Suzanne texts, Morgan does. To which my only response is a prayer, dear Lord. Emma Kate replies, yikes, R.I.P. loser. And Morgan responds, apparently from the grave, with a couple grieving emojis. 
Meanwhile, I'm parked alongside of the road in need of pastoral care. Get this. The passage we'll study today begins just that abruptly. Paul says, for you died. Okay, remember in this series, we're looking at different aspects of the life we could live if we entrust our lives to, to King Jesus. Two weeks ago, we examined the risen life. Last week, we considered the mindful life. And this week, we'll look at the dead life, which is also known as the hidden life. Paul says, the reason you can set your heart and hopes on the things above, the reason you can fix your mind on the things above, is for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Now, Paul's logic is quite clear. If you want to live a new life, you got to die to your old one. Now, and this is essential. It's important here to note that the first part of this message is directed to followers of Jesus. If you've given your life to God, the first half of this message is for you, okay? If, however, you're seeking and searching, I'm thrilled you're here, even for the beginning of the message, because it paints a picture of the death you need to die to live the life you want to live. In Colossians 3, Paul says plainly, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. He writes the first verb in the aorist tense in Greek. That means it's a completed action in the past. It is a done deal. Paul says, you died. Here's the theology. What happened to Jesus happened to you. Verse 1 tells us we were raised with Jesus. Here, verse 3 reminds us that first we had to die with him. C.S. Lewis summed up the idea simply, advising you to die before you die. There's no chance after. Jesus warned his disciples early on in Luke 9, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. This isn't exactly a pleasant picture of apprenticeship to Jesus, is it? Friends, maybe you're new to this journey of faith. Maybe you're simply seeking God to discern if there is a God. And if there is a God, you're wondering if he's worth trusting. Well, if that's you, I'm glad you came to church today. Because I think it's good for you to know up front what you may be getting into. Let me be clear. In Luke 9, Jesus is not trying to deter people from coming to him. He's just being clear. It's an effort toward full disclosure. We need to know what we're getting into before we sign up. You shouldn't make a decision of faith based on peer pressure or a burst of emotion. This decision requires careful calculation and deliberation because it will cost you. Okay, at first glance, the analogy embedded in this message may strike you as dark and difficult. But actually, behind the morbid metaphor, you can find hope and healing and wholeness. But if you want to experience all that and more, you've got to die before you die. Look back at Luke 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, I want to unpack this verse phrase by phrase. First, look at that word 
whoever. Now that's a big inclusive word. Jesus is talking to whoever wants to learn from him how to live. The the invitation to be his apprentice comes to any and all. You, You may be apt to exclude yourself from his invitation because of something you've done or because of something that was done to you. But Jesus wants you to take him at his word. He's speaking to you if you want to listen. The phrase, be my disciple, literally reads, come after him. It's the metaphor of a disciple following a rabbi, which is why the expression is so translated here. A word we often overlook in our English translation is the word wants. This verb, it it conveys an expression of the will. Sometimes it's translated desire, meaning you have to want to follow Jesus if you really want to follow Jesus. See, it's not something you do because your mom did. It's not something you do because your spouse does it. Nobody can make this decision but you. And my friend, if you choose to be an apprentice of Jesus, you'll be required to deny yourself. That word normally means to distance oneself from something or from someone. Consider how politicians and other public figures dissociate themselves from a colleague or something a colleague said. It's the same word used of Peter when he later denies he knows Jesus. But here the verb is used reflexively. It turns the action in on the person doing the acting. It's distancing yourself from your own self-serving interests. The disciple who denies herself then takes up her cross. Now, followers of Jesus today read these words in light of the resurrection of Jesus. But friends, don't forget, when Peter and the other disciples first heard these words, they had no idea what the cross would come to symbolize. They had no idea that the cross would be a place where Jesus would pay the penalty for sin so we might be reconciled to God. And they couldn't see past the cross to the resurrection. Not yet. At this point in Luke 9, when the disciples hear about the cross, they merely picture a favorite torture device for crimes against the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was one of the most brutal ways to die. It was intended to be slow and agonizing. We get our word excruciating from crucifixion. And it was widely known that many convicted persons were forced to carry their own crossbeam to the side of their execution. So make no mistake, the disciples get the picture. This isn't just a denial of self. It is a death to self. A disciple must deny oneself, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. That means follow in his footsteps. You're called to trace your life from the pattern he lays down for you. And that word follow is written in a tense that that indicates ongoing action. This is something we keep doing. Jesus underscores that point by emphasizing these actions are done daily. Disciples of Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus involves a daily decision to surrender my will to his. He's saying, you need to die before you die. Well, how do you feel about all this? Mark Twain offered a perceptive comment that I find appropriate here. He quipped, most people are bothered by those passages in Scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I always notice that the passages in Scripture which bothered me the most are those I do understand. We gotta die before we die. Now Jesus has a good reason for saying this. We find it in the next verse. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. We read the parallel passage from Matthew's gospel in January. Jesus says, if you've made up your mind that you're going to live this life to save your life, merely looking out for yourself so, so your life might be more comfortable, promising, and fulfilling, he says, you will fail miserably. He says, you'll lose your life. He doesn't mean you'll die. He means you'll never live. I warned you of the irony a couple months back. Selfishness makes its goal the pursuit of personal happiness, but it fails the moment it sets out. People who set their will merely to preserve and protect their lives throw their lives away. But disciples of Jesus who give their lives away find what it means to truly live. And the book... Uh, the law of happiness, Henry Cloud documents the preponderance of clinical evidence compiled in recent years, which measures what makes people happy. Hard scientific data reveals that our circumstances only make up about 10% of our happiness. Think about that a second. That means our pursuit of more money, our pursuit of a better job or a bigger house or a different spouse, the things that we chase with most passion in life, they only control about 10% of our ability to enjoy life. Talk about pushing the wrong buttons. But Cloud demonstrates that what Jesus said about living is reflected in clinical research. If you want to live, you got to give. People who give generously from their time, talents, and resources experience better mental health and less stress, anxiety, and depression. The best way to live this life is to lay down your life. Jesus concludes with a rhetorical question. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? According to Jesus, if you want to live, you need to die before you die. Here's the problem. Some of us died, but we're not all dead. We're, we're just mostly dead, to quote Billy Crystal. When, when we die to ourselves and follow Jesus, we give up our way of living and trust him for his way of living. But friends, I know a lot of believers in Jesus who don't really believe in Jesus. Oh, they may give mental assent to truths about Jesus. They may trust what he did, but they don't trust what he said. And friends, that's not real trust. Dallas Willard said this. He said, you can no more trust Jesus and not intend to obey him than you could trust your doctor and your auto mechanic and not intend to follow their advice. If you don't intend to follow their advice, you simply don't trust them. He says, perhaps the hardest thing for sincere Christians to come to grips with is the level of real unbelief in their own life. Here's the truth. A lot of us say we trust Jesus, but really, we're just keeping our options open. That, that's why Paul pleads, set your hearts on things above, set your minds on things above, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I got a passage for you too. It's found in Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Luke tells us large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Okay, I pause here to note the audience of Jesus. I think it's important 
to as much as we pay attention to the red letters and those of you who know what a physical Bible is like the red letters are the words of Jesus I'm going to encourage you to pay attention to the black letters the narrative cues who's Jesus talking to in which context sometimes Jesus' words are directed to his disciples his inner circle sometimes his words are directed to religious leaders but the words we're about to read are intended for a larger group of people some of them committed to Jesus some of them just curious about him he's talking particularly to people on the bubble now given the size of the audience oh this is Jesus moment this is Jesus moment to make the big pitch this is Jesus opportunity to get the word about out about what he offers and what he can do for his listener they've seen him heal people they've seen him straighten out the religious leaders they're already interested now it's time to reel in the net here's how he does it verse 25 large crowds were traveling with jesus and turning to them he said if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother wife and children brothers and sisters yes even their own life such a person cannot be my disciple now many readers will recognize the glaring inconsistency within his teaching on the surface his words seem to contradict his clear command to love your neighbors yourself hey Jesus even said love your enemy how do we reconcile these contradictions well first of all as with all passages in the Bible we need to step into this story to see how they heard it Jesus original hearer knew he was speaking rhetorically not literally it's well attested in Jewish literature that the call to hate is really a call to love less See, it's not about passion or compassion. What he says is about priorities. Jesus wants us to consider the most important things in our lives, our family, our friends, our ambitions, our goals. He wants us to look at the things we love most and realize Jesus is more important than the most important thing in your life. Everything else should take second place. Do you know who benefits from you putting Jesus first besides yourself? Your family, your friends, your ambition, and your goals. The best thing you can do for the people you love is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because it is from him you'll learn how to live and love and lead selflessly. What did we read two weeks ago? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. However, a lot of people think of religion as a way to simply sprinkle a little God into your life. Jesus won't hear of that. He doesn't want you to add God to your life to enhance what you've already got going. He wants you to toss your old life in the trash so he can give you a brand new one. He says in verse 27, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He repeats himself from chapter 9. But remember, this teaching isn't directed to already committed disciples. It's, It's given to the seeker, the searcher, the explorer, because he wants you to know what you're getting into before you get into it. 
He's not going to be guilty of false advertising. I bought a vacuum. And big bold letters on the box. It said, never loses suction. I open the manual. The first words I read, if your vacuum loses suction. What? Jesus wants you to know what you're getting into. So he offers an analogy, verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Before you begin a major construction project, before you break ground, it's perfectly reasonable and responsible to do the math. It would be foolish to attempt any major endeavor without thinking it through. For if you lay the foundation, Jesus says, and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. My friend, if you methodically draft plans and a budget before adding an addition to your home, how much more carefully should you consider the impact and the opportunity of following Jesus? You see, when you study the teaching of Jesus, you'll find he's not a slick con man looking for a sale. He's not a charismatic communicator over-promising and under-delivering. He soberly advises the crowd attracted to his message and his miracles to count the cost. And my friend, my friend, if you're new to our community, you'll find out quickly, I'm not going to hand you a high-pressure pitch to convince you to follow Jesus. We're a lot more interested in giving you an opportunity to give the evidence thoughtful and intelligent consideration. So do the math. Run the numbers. Count the cost. He offers another metaphor in verse 31. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. In this analogy, the king's pressed to make a decision to become a, a more powerful king's enemy or ally. It's not a decision to be taken lightly. And neither is a decision to follow Jesus. So ask yourself, are you willing to learn from him how to live your life? And I mean, consider every area of your life. Are you willing to trust him with your career? Can you trust that his call to an ethical, honest, and generous life will really be better for you? Or do you want to make a million or two before you start to listen? Are you willing to trust him with your relationships? Will you trust him with how you treat people? Will you trust him with your anger? That anger that's helped you get people to do things for you over the years? Will you give that to him? Will you trust him with your forgiveness? Maybe you've read what Jesus has to say on the matter in Matthew 6 or or Matthew 18, but if you're honest with yourself, you've withheld forgiveness from certain people for certain things. Will you trust him to heal your heart? Will you trust him with how you use your body? Will you trust him with how you use your money? 
Now, maybe you're not ready to make a decision to be a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you don't have enough information to make that decision yet. So keep listening. Keep learning. Surround yourself with people who are disciples. And start reading the Bible. Maybe you, you want to read the Gospels, the, the, the first four books of the New Testament, and see for yourself what Jesus has to say about life. See if his way of doing life makes sense. The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. So find out for yourself. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but you've put more thought into your summer vacation plans than your discipleship, my friend, you may want to revisit your priorities based on what Jesus taught us today. If you consider yourself a Christian, but not necessarily a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus, you may want to give the Gospels a careful read as well. What's Jesus actually asking of us? Is he simply looking for your intellectual agreement that he's the son of God who died for the sins of humankind? Is that all he's asking? To extrapolate from the inside of the apostle James. You know the devil believes that too. How's that working out for him? Jesus concludes his sober teaching with the following phrase. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He knows just like I know. Not everyone's ready to listen. Not everyone's ready to hear. But to those who are willing, he says, count the cost of following him. Count the cost of not following him. Make an intentional effort to do the math. Do a little research. Those of you with a business background might want to think of it as a CBA, a cost-benefit analysis. Take a close look at what he says, what he asks, what he offers. Determine with clarity the value of Christ's kingdom. My friends, he calls you to take this seriously and take the process seriously. If this sounds like it's all head and no heart, a clinical decision made in a sterile, emotionless environment, that's not at all what I mean. In fact, the process is deeply emotional. When we address the things we we love most, our passion comes out and discipleship to Jesus always addresses the things we love most. And that's why he wants us to take it so seriously. And friends, I don't mind presenting it to you like this because I'm convinced that if you really count the cost, if you clearly discern the impact and opportunity of following Jesus, (laughs) there's no doubt in my mind, you'll choose him. There's no doubt in my mind, you'll chase after him. And those of you who have know exactly what I mean. You'll do the math and you'll happily die before you die so you can truly live. On another occasion in Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Okay, let me address an obvious concern. We read a passage like this today and ask, is that even legal? Right? And if it is, is it ethical? Well, there's evidence in in rabbinic law that indicates this might have been a widely accepted practice in the ancient Near East. But, But that's not, even that's not the point. When you read a parable, it's a genre of literature, or in this case, rhetoric. When you read a parable, it's best if you don't get hung up on the details. See, parables aren't allegories. We're not meant to find meaning in every detail. 
The point is not the legality or illegality of the action. The point is to emphasize the value of the treasure. Finding buried treasure in the ancient world is the equivalent of winning the lottery today. In fact, if Jesus were walking among us this morning, he might remark, the kingdom of heaven is like a man winning the lottery. Now, I'm well aware that some might be offended by a reference to the lottery, but I could totally see Jesus using the comparison in a parable anyway, because the ethics are not the point. The value is the point. When an individual actually counts the cost of following Jesus, when he or she carefully weighs the kingdoms of this earth against the kingdoms of Christ, the scales always tip the same way. It doesn't take a genius to contrast one with the other. And you don't have to be good at integrals and derivatives to do this math, friends. The value is so obvious. You will sell everything you have, everything you own, to buy the one ticket. It's totally worth it. Jesus says the man sells it all and he does so with joy. When you accurately contrast what Jesus is asking and what Jesus is offering, you'll recognize you're the one getting the deal of a lifetime. And you'll be as giddy as a kid on Christmas when you do. He offers one more parable to underscore his point. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What determines something's value? Well, what someone will pay for it. This week, I I read about a new Girl Scout cookie. It's called Raspberry Rally. Think thin mints, but berry flavored. Now, It's only sold online at $5 a box, but it's already sold out. You can buy a box on eBay for upwards of $100. You think it's worth it? Well, the merchant in the parable found a single pearl worth everything he owned. My friend, the the life you really want can be yours, but you gotta die before you die to get it is it worth it this week I was diagnosed with sleep apnea actually I was diagnosed with severe sleep apnea if you don't know sleep apnea is a disorder uh, a sleep disorder in which you repeatedly stop breathing in your sleep now over time the consequence Uh, The consequences could be dire. Weight gain, high blood pressure, heart problems, liver problems. So, they're going to put me on a little machine at night, which they swear won't make me sound like Darth Vader, but will help me sleep better and get more oxygen to my brain. Now, friends, (laughs) I predict within 30 to 90 days of treatment, I will have the body of Brad Pitt and the brain of Albert Einstein. We're talking Mensa-level genius. Here it comes. Of course, one might be concerned that I'm overestimating the impact of the new life I'll experience after receiving treatment for sleep apnea. 
But friends, I'm concerned that many of you will underestimate the impact of the new life you can experience in Jesus if you die before you die. Honestly, your old life's not worth, worth living anyway. A couple weeks ago, I shared this verse with you. Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that's... This is what Paul's getting at in that single verse in the third chapter of Colossians, verse 3. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. One of my favorite words in the Bible is the word in, as in I-N. One day I'll preach a whole message on it. It's a powerful little preposition. Because in the letters of Paul, it describes so much of his theology of what happens to a follower of Jesus when they trust him with their lives. And think about it. Those of you who have read the, the letters of Paul in the New Testament, think how many times he says something like, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in this, in that, in him, in him, in God, all the things, right? And, and if you really, we're so used to just ignoring prepositions that we don't realize how potent that little preposition is in Paul's theology. There is something powerful about us being in Christ Jesus. But what's interesting is, is often, and often in the same letter, Paul will make another kind of analogy with the same preposition, but instead of talking about us being in Christ Jesus, he talks about Christ being in us. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 27, he talks about Christ in us, the hope of glory. What the heck is he getting at? We're, we're in him, and he's in us. And here in Colossians 3, verse 3, is the only time we see any writer in the, in the New Testament talk about us being hidden in God. What's he getting at? My office, I, I have many, many of the world's leading exegetical commentaries on the book of Colossians written by the world's leading New Testament scholars. And I'll tell you right now, as much as they're good at their jobs and figuring out theologically what's happening in the text, practically speaking, it's clear to me that our relationship with, with Jesus, being hidden in him, is clearly hidden to them too because they have no idea what it actually means in, in everyday life. But I, I, I look to uh, a wonderful, wonderful professor and uh, teacher. His name's James Bryan Smith. Some of you have been reading through his devotional that I recommended a couple weeks to you. It's called Hidden in Christ, and he works through the passage we're working through, line by line, sometimes word by word. It's just a little daily devotional. And, and in James Bryan Smith's book, he, he one day after pondering Colossians 3, verse 3, over years, he realized what was maybe the best contemporary analogy for it. Do you know what a matryoshka doll is? You ever seen one of these? James Bryan Smith brought this to my attention. See, when, when I was a kid in the 80s, 
my grandfather went to the USSR and brought back one of these for me. Often they're called Russian nesting dolls. Here's why. Ready? Oh! Here's the analogy. You, Jesus is the bigger doll. You and I are hidden in him. See, I live and move within him. By God's grace, what happened to Jesus happened to me. I've been crucified with him and I'm raised to new life in him. Because of Jesus, I'm entitled. I know that's a strong word, but I'm going to stick with it. Because of Christ Jesus, I'm entitled to forgiveness and wisdom and reconciliation to God. I don't deserve it, but because of him, because I'm in him, I'm entitled to it. Because of Jesus, I can barge right into the throne room of God and ask for his help. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. Being hidden in Christ, my identity and my significance is found in him. See, we usually look to other sources to find our identity and our significance. Our significance is usually wrapped up in what we achieve, how we look, and who likes us, right? But when my identity and significance is found first and foremost in him, friends, that makes my achievements more meaningful, eternal even. I'm hidden in him. And friends, being hidden in him is directly tied to your value. Earlier I asked, what determines something's value? What somebody will pay for it. I take you back to Galatians 2.20. What did we read? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's your value, my friend. You're hidden in him. Now, as we continue through this series and the days ahead, we'll go through it verse by verse by verse and each week we'll unpack different aspects of the life that's truly life, right? And what we'll find is the apostle paints a picture of how we're we're called to live. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations per se. That's the wrong way to look at it. But, But he describes what it looks like when someone's life is hidden in Christ Jesus. He talks about anger. Goes straight at it and says we've got to get rid of it. It's not a way to live. You know what he talks about? Oh, this is going to be so awkward, and I'll be the one to teach it. Yeah, it'll be fun. We're going to talk about sex. We're talking about lust. You may not want to bring your mama to church that day, okay? Or sit on the other side of the room. He talks about compassion kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and these beautiful qualities that that most of us when we're thinking right long to live we long to to embody those those qualities in our families and and in our workplaces we we long for those things but honestly it it can be intimidating can it so we wonder how the heck we're going to live like that we've tried willpower don't work okay ah But remember, we're hidden in Christ Jesus and he's hidden in us. 
This is how it works. We're in him, he's in us. And he works within us to shape us and mold us. To transform us into the people he's called us to be. Because what happens is when we're hidden in him, who he, or when we're hidden in him, who he is seeps into our souls. And we can't help but change. See how this analogy, as James Bryan Smith says, covers both kinds of in? Pray with me. Lord, I pray that my friends recognize the beauty of the life that could be theirs if they died before they die. I pray my friends will find the faith to trust your way of living and give up their way of doing it. I pray the I want to say I pray the harshness of your words that we read in Luke 9 and Luke 14 got our attention. Especially those of us who who have always thought of ourselves as following you. But maybe now we can recognize we haven't been following you. We've just been checking in with you every once in a while when we need something. We've been asking you to follow us. Lord, help us to take our discipleship, our apprenticeship to you seriously and learn from you how to live the lives we're called to live. I pray for my friends who don't know you or don't know you well. I pray this this sober message won't scare them. But maybe it will help them to see why their past experiences of faith, even faith in you, didn't work. For lack of a better way to say it, it's just because they didn't do it right. They didn't die before they died. I pray you'd help them to find the faith, to see what you say to put your words into practice and grow in their trust in you so that they'll eventually come to a point where they trust you with their whole lives. And I pray for the man or the woman, the, the, the boy or the girl, the individual here who who's ready, who feels ready to say, I'm in. Just like my friend Adrian did a little earlier in this service. Lord, I pray I pray, God, that you would uh, give them a quiet moment this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow where they tell you that. They give themselves over to you. And they ask you not just to be their savior, but their king. I pray in the name of the King. Amen. Look, I don't have much homework for you today. But I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to ponder it this week. Here it is. Is there a part of your life that needs to die so you can truly live? Do a little soul searching this week. And if... 
If you're in that space where you make a commitment of faith, I want to know. Good night. Would you tell me? Send an email. Email the church. It's easy to remember. Info at capitalchurch.com. That's one way to do it. Tell a friend. Tell another disciple. And if you, if you, you want to go further, model what Adrian modeled for us. Jesus said, you know, after we make commitments to follow him, he tells us all to get baptized. I know it's an ancient ritual, but it's one of the things that's brought the community of Jesus together over the millennia. Do what he says. And maybe that's a good first step. If you're interested, you can sign up for more information online or fill out that connection card in the seat back in front of you if you're watching online. I don't know how we'd get that sorted for you, especially if you're far away, but we'd love to, to talk to you about it. So send us an email, okay? Um, for the rest of you, for all of you, let's stand. Here's a verse for the week. Luke 9, verse 23. We read it earlier. The image on the screen and the graphic that follows will be available for you to download from our website, so be watching for them. If you'd like to receive prayer, we'll have people here at the front to pray for you before you leave if you're in our building, if you're watching online or, or anytime through the week, always send us an email, care at capitalchurch.com, okay? So we'd love to pray for you. Here's what I want to pray for you. I'll keep it simple. May you find the faith to die before you die because your old life's not worth living anyway. Thanks for being here. Grace and peace.